Hello, I'm Mary Portis, and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow, people, planet, and profit. In that order, it's the future. Are you ready for better? We often hear that Generation Z is conflicted and so addicted to fashion that 64% of British 16 to 19-year-olds admit to buying clothes they've never worn, with 70% simultaneously saying that sustainability is an important factor in their purchasing decisions. Well, look, this is hardly surprising. You know, they've been brought up in a world in which the climate debate has increasingly taken centre stage. But they've also come of an age when social media, marketing that pervades every aspect of their lives, and alongside that, a fashion machine that's got even faster. It's understandable that they're voracious consumers, even though they still want to save the planet. In his 2019 book, Narrative Economics, Robert Schiller argued that popular stories drive our economies by seeping into our culture and then drive out our buying decisions. This story we've all been told for decades now is that, well, buying will make us better, make us happier, more content, more, more, more. Get the it bag, get the new trousers, gotta have three pairs of trainers. No, you don't, you gotta have six pairs of trainers. But as much older consumers might think they're different to Generation Z, it's time to be honest. When we think about fashion, or buying stuff for our home, who doesn't enjoy the rush of dopamine they experience when they hand over their card and they take the handle of a beautiful shopping bag? Generation Z might be in the spotlight for this, but they're just the ultimate evolution of what older generations have always done. And while the finger is often pointed at fast fashion, that, excuse me, let's not forget, luxury retailers are far from innocent. Recently, Coach came under fire for destroying its stock, but before then, it was Burberry. In fact, so many brands are doing this, it's been called fashion's dirty secret. And it is dirty. It's deeply dirty. But hang on a minute, let's go back to Robert Schiller's popular stories again and ask ourselves one question. How can we rewrite the narrative? By the way, there's a big mea culpa here from me who created many narratives for many brands over the years. But this is a huge question and one that we must collectively answer. But on an individual level, we can work out the story we tell ourselves. Is this purchase really making me happy? Or is there another more natural way to get that, as now being called, that dopamine purchase kick? Of course there is. I wrote on my post today on my Instagram that I put on a necklace that a friend gave to me and as I put it on I just thought of my friend. Ten years ago I had that necklace. I give so many bits of my clothes away. Sometimes I look at my pals and go god that was lovely did I really give you that can I have it back? (laughs) But there's this joy in swapping clothes, giving and giving love alongside it and memories. That's a great dopamine kick. Buying second hand rummaging in wonderful charity shops, learning to sew, learning to darn, upcycling. I went and met this wonderful young designer who was just buying old second-hand stuff from charity shops and then remaking them beautifully. These are the new stories. We have to do some of them. 
We have to think about stuff that can inspire our souls and not just that dopamine kick. It's all of these things that will make us better. And it's only when we change the stories, those deep true stories in ourselves, that we'll start to play our part in unravelling the underlying emotional need that drives the addiction to acquisition. This isn't just Gen Z's problem, it's all of ours. I'm Mary Portis. Welcome to The Kindness Economy. The Kindness Economy is supported by Dell Technologies and their Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. Dell and Dwen are giving away up to £40,000 worth of tech solutions to three female-led small businesses in the UK. That's between the 8th and 14th of November. You can vote for your favourite finalists and help them win the top prize. View their pitch videos and vote for your favourite now at dwen.com forward slash dreamtech UK. That's dwen.com, D-W-E-N forward slash dreamtech dash UK. And thanks again to Dell Technologies. And now here's the show. There are people in business who truly live and breathe their values and always have done. My guest today is one of them. Del Vince is the green energy industrialist who left school at 15 and spent 10 years traveling and living off the grid in buses, trucks, and even underneath tarpaulin. In 1996, he founded Ecotricity with one windmill in Gloucestershire. The company now employs over 600 people and supplies green energy to 117,000 homes. Oh, by the way, Dale is also the chairman of Forest Green Rovers, the world's first vegan and UN-certified carbon-neutral football club. His most recent launch is Sky Diamond, gemstones that are created by taking carbon out of the atmosphere to create sustainable diamonds. Dale's work is inextricably linked with his values. But what shifts has he seen in this business landscape over the past 25 years? And does he really think that we're on the brink of huge and meaningful change? I think I probably was from a very young age. Like within me, I felt concern for the finite nature of things and for the way that life was being lived. So my, um, my earliest recollection of a, of a concerned thought was aged about 11 or 12. And I was concerned about where oil came from and when it was going to run out. And this is in the 70s. Nobody talked about that. We definitely didn't learn about it at school. But I knew from my own experience as a kind of mad inventor and builder of things as a kid that energy was a really precious thing and that things did run out you know i used rudimentary batteries to power things and they didn't last very long at all so i had a sense of the finite nature and the, and the precious nature of energy from from an early age and you um you ended up leaving school quite young T- tell me about that i mean was that something that just didn't connect with you because you're obviously a bright man. It's interesting. What is it that made you leave at 15? I hated it. Yeah. Um, you know, every every part of it. I hated every part of it. The the pointless rules. I didn't like that. Um, I just wanted to get out <clears throat> and and do my own thing. You know, 
I, I guess I always bumped into authority and into the kind of regular way of doing things, and and uh, and I think that's probably that's probably neurological. You know, much later in life, uh, you know, I learned that uh, I'm I'm not just different on my own terms, which I've always felt, but you know, I'm one of a number of people that are different neurologically, you know, on the autism spectrum. So I imagine there was an element of that in there as well. Um, but yeah. It's just so interesting because I, I often feel this sort of rub with this. And I know you, you've taken on a lot of things, but schooling, God, it needs someone to take that on, doesn't it? Because, yeah. you know, where, where, you know, there are incredible, wonderful individual people everybody who goes into the school system starts off like that and then we we control it and you know this isn't anti-schools i just think that creativity and the ability to express and work with the individual has got to be where we need to move to but that would be another discussion of course so you leave school at 15 and and then i read that you spent 10 years traveling and living off the grid in buses trucks and <laughs> underneath tarpaulins <laughs> And ended up in Gloucestershire, or were you always in Gloucestershire? No, I was, uh, well, I grew up on the East Coast in East Anglia, in Great Yarmouth. And, um, yeah, I hit the road in the early 80s, probably. I think it was, in fact. And for the entire 80s, I did live on the road. And towards the end of that decade, I'd visited Stroud a couple of times. I had a little windmill on the roof of the trailer that I was living in. And so I'd become kind of au fait with small scale wind energy and was using renewable energy to power my life. I was trying to live a different way. I was trying to live a low impact lifestyle personally, as well as live outside of all of the, all of the strictures and controls of, of, of modern life. You know, the pressure to get a job and have a career and start a pension and do all of those things ready for the day that you could from my perspective, finally have your life back, which is when you're old enough to retire, which I just thought was bonkers. So mm. I wanted to live differently to that. It's like that old adage, isn't it, where the, the very wealthy man who wants to end up just fishing in a local village after he's made his millions and sits next to the fisherman who's been sitting there from day one just yeah. fishing and just yeah. has his little house and they both want the same things. How much do we need in life? So... There you were, a former traveller, young, looking to disrupt the traditional energy market. So what I love and I want for people to understand is how that happened, that you were able with your little, you know, windmill on top of your van, go into, and we need to understand, this was a huge market run by fossils and corporations and big boys who would talk data and money and bottom line. How did you disrupt that? And what kind of reaction did you get? First, if I may, an adage of my own, which kind of uh, speaks to me to almost the most important approach to life. It's a question. Do you live to eat or do you eat to live? And I eat to live. And I think it's a really important question. And over the top of that, I overlay the idea of why people work, why businesses exist. Do they exist to make money or do they exist for another purpose like we do at Ecotricity? So, you know, we do make money, but we very much eat to live. We don't live just to make that money. And purpose is almost the most important thing, starting point, I think, in terms of outcome. So moving on from that, um, it's a crazy story, really, because I lived on this hill temporarily because uh, it's always temporary when you're living on the road. Where was the hill? 
Uh, outside Stroud, near a village called Nibsfield. It's now the home of our first windmill, which is like 26 years old now. And I just, um, I had this epiphany, it literally was properly, I thought I could spend another 10 years living like this myself, a low impact lifestyle, or I could drop back in and try and build a big windmill on this hill. And I'd just become aware of climate change in 1991. And I was aware that the way electricity was made was the biggest single cause in our country. And for years, us hippies had talked about how they should do this and they should do that particularly about renewable energy because it was clean, it was, it was free, it was natural, you know, had a lot of benefits. And I put all of that together and thought, I should drop back in and be the they, you know, try to bring some change to the way energy is made because it was the single biggest source of carbon emissions and therefore made sense to me to start there. And I had just a little bit of experience of using small scale windmills, um, which kind of I don't know, maybe it was useful, maybe it wasn't. I don't really know, but it, it took me five years to build that first windmill. It was an endless sea of battles. Um, quite often it felt like I was in a tunnel and I wouldn't go backwards, couldn't go backwards, but I couldn't see the light. And you know, in the middle of that five years, I thought, what am I doing here? Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm dedicating everything to this, just to build this one windmill. But I got there in the end. And in, in the process, I learned everything about everything to do with energy and renewable energy, uh, finance, planning, grid, everything. And it became the blueprint to build some more and to create the company now called Ecotricity. I formed it in 1995. It was the world's first green energy company. Nobody at that time sold this new kind of electricity, green electricity. And um, the market in Britain had just been liberalized by Margaret Thatcher, absolutely not one of my favorite people in history. I might have thought that would have been the case. <laughs> and and it, it opened the path. So in 1995, I went to see our local power company. I knew that the first windmill was coming. I'd been winning enough battles to see that that day was, was coming. And I went to see them and asked them if they wanted to buy green electricity because I needed a buyer in order to build more windmills. And they were a monopoly buyer at the time. If you made electricity, you had to sell it to them. And they behaved like that. They laughed at the idea. They said, what even is it? Who wants it? Here's a rubbish price. Literally, almost, they said that. And I left that meeting and just thought to myself, well, look, the only way to do this is cut out this middleman, be a supplier of green energy, go direct to people with it. And that would be the answer. And um, I got a form from Ofgem back in the days of fax. I filled out maybe three or four sides of A4, faxed it to the regulator off gem, and next thing you know, I had a license to be an electricity company. And <clears throat> I did a little bit of a study of how the grid worked. I came up with a new concept of embedded supply, matching generation to customers within a local grid area, avoiding the national grid. And um, 1st of April, 1996, we supplied our first green electricity to our first customer, the first customer for it in the world as it happened. And, Who was uh, that? Where was that? Uh, Gloucester and Cheltenham College, or Cheltenham oh. Gloucester College, up in Cheltenham. And, uh, you know, it was a very brave energy manager that, uh, that sat and listened to me and said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And uh, he became our first customer. So that, I mean, it's an incredible story. We're, we're going to get back on Thatcher and all the things that happened there and business. There's so many things that you've touched on that I want to get back on. But just before that, fast forward 25 years, mm -hmm. right, from that. And... Um, 
talk to me about why you think that it's about local solutions. I know I, I've read that you talk about in terms of renewable energy, you champion energy independence in the UK, producing its own energy. Can you can you tell me more about how we do that and what problems it would solve? Energy independence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure, because. It touches on some other themes for me, the idea of green populism, which is in my book. And, and my five-year battle to build a windmill is in there as well. There's an awful lot of, uh, I think, interesting detail in, in there. But at, at the end of, uh, of the end of the book, I start to talk about green populism and how we need to talk about things differently, present them differently. So right now, <clears throat> the idea of us powering ourselves completely with renewable energy is normally presented as an altruistic thing to do, to fight the climate crisis, to save polar bears, that kind of stuff, you know. And to a lot of people, that does not resonate. It doesn't speak to them about their daily struggles to live, to afford their energy bills, to have a job, that kind of stuff. And so energy independence is about um, flipping the way we look at the same thing, powering ourselves completely with renewable energy, but presenting it in a different way. Not unlike Brexit, as it happens, uh, and I think that was a really successful, if dishonest, communication campaign. And so <clears throat> our starting premise is that today, actually pre the energy crisis, Britain spends £50 billion per year bringing fossil fuels to our country just to burn them. That's a billion pounds a week. So three times the lie on the side of the Brexit bus, but real. And it's a billion pounds leaving our economy every year. And if instead we made our own energy here from the wind and the sun, we would create hundreds of thousands of long-term good jobs. We would keep 50 billion a year in our economy. We would end fuel poverty. We would end the annual cycle of rising fuel bills because the cost of our energy would never need to go up. Of course, we would also clean up the air and the icing on the cake. We'd fight the climate crisis. But what we would do is um, disconnect ourselves from the global fossil fuel markets, which are the peak of capitalism. Uh, you know, they don't reflect the cost of um, sourcing fossil fuels. You know, the price went up this winter fivefold, not because it became more expensive to get fossil fuels, but because of market sentiment. And we can detach ourselves from that crazy uber capitalism, make our own energy, take responsibility for that, have jobs in our economy for that reason, and, and give a massive actual boost to our economy in the process and fight the climate crisis. So that comes last in that description of all of the benefits of doing this. But um, a couple of things. I love the fact that, you know, the way that we need to get that message out there. And you're right, the Brexit campaign was bloody brilliant, even though it was dishonest. I'm with you totally on that. What you're talking about here is when we understand how people want to live, there's a me and a we, isn't there? There's, is it good for me? Can I afford this? And is it good for we, the way that we live? And it's how we combine those messages. But let's look at the bigger picture on that. The, the, this fossil fuel thing, surely COP26, we're looking at absolutely getting rid of this. Is that not what our, the, our government is saying, that we will stop importing fossil fuels? Not yet. Not yet. We're on the path. There's no doubt about it. And if I may, energy independence doesn't just work for Britain, because every country in the world has access to the wind and the sun. Every country. We don't all have access to fossil fuels. And that has caused a lot of the the geopolitical issues that we have in the world, the wars in the Middle East over oil and gas, for example, and, and all those kinds of hassles that go with that. So renewable energy and energy independence is an enormous democratizing force for the world. We can all be energy independent. 
and not have a global market in energy. And also at the same time, that's denominated in dollars, which gives enormous strength to the American economy. And, and we can end that as well. So through you, Ecotricity, which I have, I do get my bills from you. By the way, Dale, we don't need as many paper bills. I'm just chucking that one right. at you. I get too many paper bills. Can you speak with your team on that? <laughs> so this is all, this, this <laughs> too much over. paper. I'm like, you don't need it. We have an app. We have an app for that. Um, okay. Maybe you don't know, but I was just hesitating because you might be on our old system and we're a few weeks away from having everybody on the new system. And absolutely, we want to be paperless. We've been trying for a long time. One of the unfortunate um, regulatory aspects of the energy industry is that we are forced to offer paper bills and it's quite hard to shift some people off of them. But, yeah. Wow, didn't know that. Thanks for that. Now listen, I often talk about that I believe businesses should be living institutions that create social progress and give back to the community and the towns and the places they reside just as much as taking from them. And you really are that. And one of the things that I love, and I, well, you can talk more about it, I'm sure there's more you do, that you've done locally, is invest in the local football team, Forest Green Rovers, right? <laughs> Everybody tells me the story of the the club is vegan and and you were you insisted that they were vegan um and it's actually really worked because there was this mistaken belief that not eating meat would impact athletes' performances, but that's all changing, isn't it? And tell me how you got involved with the local football club and why that was important. Yeah, we'll do. I mean, that was a happy accident, um, a serendipity. Uh, but first, just to just to go back to your point about businesses, I, I'm I'm with you there. I might express it in different terms, but I think that business should exist for a reason other than profit. And this comes yeah. back to my "Do you live to eat or eat to live?" kind of mantra. And I think businesses should eat to live, uh, not not live to eat. And when you pursue only money, as most businesses and business people do, you make bad decisions. Bad for people, bad for the environment. There's no outcome that's good when you pursue only money. And I think that's one of the big things that's wrong in the world today and that we actually need to repurpose capitalism to have uh, a different uh, agenda. And if we do that, we can not just fight the climate crisis, but we can bring some, you know, some equality and some, and some good to, uh, to our society. So that's a long, that's a big fight. I mean, it's something I write about a lot in my book. And that's why I've called it the kindness economy. How can we create an economy that understands all the social um, and the living, the way that we live our lives and how it can benefit humanity and the way we live and make money. And it is still the biggest thing I come up against whenever I'm doing talks on this. And when you have, and here's the thing, and I know we need to talk about it, but when you have a society that still, and we've seen it at COP26, that still sees success as growth, it's a really massive job that we need to do on this. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, sorry. I, I, well, I was just going to say, I think I think success for most people is measured in money. Yes, um, money, and, power, and fame. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's mm -hmm. true. That's true. Um, and and I think it comes back to purpose. I really mm. do. You know, and in a way, this links to the story of Forest Green Rovers that uh, I'm now going to tell you. So, 2010, the summer of 2010, um, Forest Green Rovers was in trouble on and off the pitch, facing relegation and bankruptcy. And, uh, and I went to see them because they asked me to. And I'm a big football fan, but I'd never been uh, to the ground. And it was a lovely place. It reminded me of small theater, really intimate and visceral. I hadn't seen a football game like that. And they were lovely people. And they said they just needed 30 grand to get through the summer. And I believe this is 
of a story as old as football itself. And I said, yeah, you know, I can do that. I can help, so I will. I mean, it's in my backyard. It's 120 years old, big part of its local community. So my originating purpose uh, was just to help out. And then by the end of the summer, uh, chairman came to me and said, actually, they needed an awful lot more than that. They didn't really know what they needed. It was a, a big mess, as I was about to find out. And he said to me, you know, you need to be the chairman, otherwise it's going to fold. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm way too busy for that. And, you know, then I thought about it and I thought, well, again, you know, it's a, it's a big part of this local community. How hard can it be? I could do this, so why don't I just? And I didn't put any thought into what it might involve running a football club. I just thought I would do it. And... Um, Day one, literally day one, I was at the club and saw that we were serving red meat to our players. And I, I got the chef and the manager together and I said, we have to stop this, guys. From a performance point of view, if nothing else, it makes no sense. And they were completely on board. And so on day one, we did that. We, we executed what the Sun called the red meat ban, which was great because it sensationalized it. And we lent into that. That was no problem for us at all. And um, over a series of about three seasons, we changed the menu from a red meat ban to a white meat ban. We, then we took away fish and then we took away dairy and eggs um, and became a vegan football club. And it was part of a journey that we, we realized quite quickly that we had to take, that there was so much of the club that had to be changed that we would in effect build a different kind of football club a green one, something again that hadn't existed before. And we'd be taking our message to an audience of people that um, hadn't been exposed to it before and who stereotypically you would expect would not be receptive. You know, we would not be preaching to the choir. And um, that appealed to me that that would be difficult. I think difficult things are usually more worthwhile. And, uh, and so we just set about it. We wove the environment into the DNA of the football club. We endured all kinds of doubts and criticisms and, and naysaying and all that kind of stuff. But they, then again, I'm used to that. And I think maybe that empowers me. And uh, here we are like 11 years later. Uh, the UN and FIFA have described us as the greenest football club on the planet. I'm a climate champion for the UN program Sport for Climate Action. Uh, Forest Green Rovers has a global audience. I mean, when we set out, we did think that we might be able to um, reach football fans through football and get them to become fans of the environment. And we found that absolutely that has worked, not just in football, but all forms of sport. So we're part of this UN program that is doing the same thing, reaching out to the, the entire world of sport. And there are billions of them on the planet. And, um, you know, our fans have gone veggie and vegan. They buy electric cars, solar panels. You know, they've, they've embraced the whole eco agenda. I love this because I think football, I was talking to... Uh, Michael Doughty about these trainers that he's created, which, you know, he was a footballer and he's created totally sustainable trainers. And it's such a huge audience, a huge audience. And for you to tap into those is deeply exciting because that is where real change happens. And I love, I was reading also that the, the vegan food is becoming the diet of choice for athletes because of the boost it gives their performance, like Sergio Aguero, Lionel Messi, you know, and of course, our second highest shareholder and Premier League player, Hector Bellerin. Um, we could be preaching to the converted when you live in Stroud, which is a very activist, right on, incredible place. And I've seen all the footballers when you drive through Nailsworth and all the fans coming out. And to actually take a sport, which is pretty damn alpha. And the other thing on this sport, you know, let's not forget they sell a lot of stuff, footballers. 
to kids who want those brands and labels and stuff that's not maybe helping the planet. So I think that's an extraordinarily important thing to do. So there you are, starting out with your eco business, you go into football. And I've read also you've invested in vegan school dinners business. Is, is that the next big change? I mean, you're taking on Jamie Oliver now. What's happening here, Dale? Talk to me about that. You know, that must be better than the crap a lot of kids are getting at the moment. Oh, definitely. And it span out of Forest Green as it happens. The idea did, because we were making our own uh, veggie burgers and stuff. You know, we, what we did when we changed the menu at Forest Green is we, we took care to make our own food and make great food to show people that it's not food with something missing, actually, that it's just great food. And we've, we've achieved that. Food sales at Forest Green are six times higher now than, than when I rescued the club. Oh, you need to get those across other football clubs. I mean, I take my son sometimes down to Watford and it's just burgers and, you know, it's literally just hot dogs and you can smell them from about three miles away. Yeah. You could actually create a little sub-brand that goes right across all football clubs. Yeah, we're on it. We start, thought you might be, mate. <laughs> we started the Devil's <laughs> Kitchen probably about two years ago, and obviously it's been mostly pandemic since then. But the idea originated with taking plant-based uh, food into primary schools because it's so super important what kids eat, what everybody eats, obviously. And uh, we make a range of burgers and balls, and we're in like 3,000 schools now, and it's so popular that it's been embraced by secondary schools and universities. We've been in some... Uh, public spaces like theme parks as well, and some football clubs. And uh, we're in a cardo. We're trying to get into um, other supermarkets soon. So there's a retail outlet as well. And we make the most fantastic food. I have to say it's the best burger that I've ever had as a 40 year vegan and a fan of burgers, I must, I must say. So I've tried quite a few. And you know, it's free from the 14 top food allergens as well, which makes it super inclusive for mass catering. So, you know, your gluten, your wheat, seeds, nuts, soya, everything you can name is not in there, but they're super tasty. We make them in a little place powered by the wind and the sun here in Stroud, uh, you know, with um, recycled packaging. And, you know, we do the whole eco nine yards as you might expect we would. And, and it's great fun. And, and actually off the back of that, we've just launched a curriculum for primary schools that like Forest Green has got the environment woven into every topic. And we launched it with a local school in Midgenhampton uh, where a couple of my boys went and I knew the headmaster and it came out of a conversation we had a couple of years ago. <clears throat> we launched this September, 15 schools nationally are piloting it and um, we're aiming to get into 50% of all primary schools in the next couple of years with a proper environment themed primary school agenda. We, have, we set up a company, we've called it the the Ministry of Eco-Education. There's a huge gap. The government are doing nothing in this space, so we decided we would. God, I'm taking my hat off to you, mate. Um, am I reading this properly here, that your latest project, Sky Diamond, listen yeah. to this one, everybody. This is an innovative solution to several problems. One of them is the environmental impact created by gem mining. Just, just talk to me about this, how bad it is, first of all, and how you're going about finding a solution to it. Yeah, so... Um, Diamonds are measured in carats, <clears throat> and one carat is a fifth of a gram. It's a very small thing. You can hold it between your fingertips. It's a small stone. Uh, to get that fifth of a gram of diamond, the conventional mining industry digs 1,100 tons of rock out of the ground. Within that 1,100 tons, there'll be about 30 tons of toxic heavy metals that leach into the surrounding environment. There's a 5,000 liter consumption of water for that single carat of diamond and about a half a ton of greenhouse gas emissions, 500 kilograms for a fifth of a gram of diamond. So that's the environment footprint of the conventional way of doing things. And um, 
What we created uh, instead was a way to mine the sky. So we take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and uh, we strip the carbon from that. We've, we basically create a mixture of gases using benign processes that we feed into a diamond oven that uses plasma, which is the fourth state of matter. At school I learned there was uh, liquid solid gas, but there is a fourth state called plasma. And uh, in that plasma, we can grow actual diamonds using carbon that we capture from the atmosphere, um, which I think is really, it's like modern alchemy, you know, the idea that we can do that. And when I first had the idea about 10 years ago, I was pretty well enthused. I thought we have to try and do this. And it took seven years of R&D to crack the process. Uh, and it started out, I, I thought, as a carbon capture project. Wouldn't it be great to um, get carbon out of the atmosphere? We have to do that, but we have to lock it up into a permanent form. And a diamond is the most permanent form we, we know of. So wouldn't that be great to connect those two things together? It turns out that the actual amount of carbon in a diamond is really small. We're talking like maybe there's four grams involved in the making of, of a one carat stone, but the avoided carbon is massive. And so we've got this new process, our, our ingredient list is just the wind, the sun, the rain, and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, something we have too much of. And from that, we make something we quite like to have, diamonds. I'm exhausted listening to you in the nicest possible way. I mean, you've, you've disrupted energy, you've disrupted football, you've disrupted food and diamonds. Is there anything else you want to turn on the head, Dale, while we're on this? I mean, like, I think people would be going, I, I, this could be a podcast that went on for about three days. <laughs> what, what, what other things have you got on the I'm sure there must be something else going on. Well, we did transport already. So in 2008, I wanted a greener car. I wanted an electric one, and there were none in the world, so we made one. We made the Nemesis, Britain's first electric car. And then we built a charging network called the Electric Highway in 2010. Uh, which was the world's first national network for charging electric cars because we wanted to kickstart the electric car revolution. And if you fast forward to today, that's well underway. So we bailed out of that earlier this year, sold the electric highway, and we're going to use that money to do some other stuff. And one of those things is to make gas from grass. Uh, we need to replace the fossil gas in the gas grid that heats our homes. And uh, we've, we've created a way to do that using grass and we've... Um, We've scoped out how much land there is in Britain, what's being done with it, um, and we just need two-thirds of grazing land, which requires a 10% reduction in red meat consumption, and we can make enough gas to power all of our homes. So we're building our first project in uh, this year in Reading to make gas from grass, which is pretty cool. Other than that, um, an electric hovercraft for fun, because nobody's made one yet. Turns out that it's got a use in um, seagrass seed collection, <laughs> Seagrass is an amazing opportunity for rewilding our shores. It absorbs carbon at a rate 30 times faster than rainforests do. And we've lost about 90% of our seagrass meadows around Britain. So we're kind of uh, accidentally involved in that. And um, the next really big thing that we've got is a machine that makes water. And it, it doesn't literally make water, but it makes drinking water from any kind of water, from rain, drain, dishwasher, and even toilet water. And it's a device that we've perfected over the last few years. It's about one cubic meter in size, and you can bury it under the drain pipe of your house, and it will take you off the mains water and sewage grid. You know, when you said earlier, I believe that when you pursue any money, which is, you know, why I put profit at the end of people, planet, profit, that you make bad decisions and you get bad outcomes from a social and, and an environmental point of view. 
It's absolutely true personally as well, isn't it? Bear with me on this. You don't just do great work or get real fulfillment if you're just focused on money. And the amount of times that I, I speak with uh, businesses about this, we've got to shift our signifiers of success into thriving. But one thing that comes out of what you do and just sitting and, and talking to you is this creativity and always imagining a better future. And from imagining better comes creative ideas, which so much in business we've lost because we're focused on data and we're focused on the bottom line. Would you say that creativity and the imagination and the soft skills are going to be what's going to save us in the future? Because I, I, I say this for, you know, hoping that businesses will look at that and start to allow a sort of fluidity around them instead of a control. Would you say that that's going to be probably one of the most key things is creative thinking and risk? Yeah, I would say so. And purpose, I would add purpose to it. It's kind of a favor of, of mine because, yes. because it, it really matters. So, you know, we've done a number of things um, in our time in business and we use business as a tool to achieve something, but the something is not making money. And we've made a number of decisions that no conventional business would make because there's no business case for them. But we have a case for them, an environment case. And so we do them like the electric highway, the electric car, uh, all kinds of things, actually. Listen, I want to ask you this one, because recently we've had COP26. Now, there is so much doom and gloom about, and I, I know that you've talked about, you know, our government, and we, I think we share the same feelings on that. But is there hope? Do you think there's a, a, a real political will that's... No. that's I'm going to say no. no. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say no. I, I think um, politicians at the moment see it as a box to tick and they don't get it. I think they're behind the curve. I think people increasingly get it around the world and in Britain. Um, there's an increasing demand for change. Um, businesses are picking that up and they're changing what they do. The rise of plant-based options, for example, in supermarkets, cafes, restaurants, fast food joints, everywhere you can now name or imagine there are vegan options uh, because they're selling. And this is what businesses respond to. It comes back to the point really of, uh, of repurposing capitalism. Capitalism or business is a great tool for doing things. We just need to point it in a different direction. And in all of these cases, government are behind the curve. They get the same data that we get. They see the same science, but they're afraid uh, on, uh, in some cases mm. to say the things that need to be said, like the fact that we have to eat less meat and dairy. Our government put it into their zero carbon plan about three weeks ago, just before COP. And then within three hours, they took it out. They'd actually cut out the section that said we have to eat less meat and dairy. But they know that's true for our own health, as well as the climate crisis and, and for wildlife as well, you know, because we're driving species extinction with our, with our diet choice. Um, can I ask you on that then? We know the scale of this whole climate change and watching COP26 can be really overwhelming. And quite frankly, it goes into the body, the, the pain body of us all. You know, we've been through a real trauma with COVID, no two ways about it. I think this is traumatic what we're watching in the wings of the power being taken out of our hands on, on so many levels. And um, I want to hear from you what you think people could be doing. I know we've got switching to renewable energy going vegan as much as you can at the top of people's to-do list. But what are other small changes as individuals making? Because that's where the change is going to come from here. The pressure from people changing the way they're living is going to change and affect government policy. It ain't coming from them. We're hearing that. What else would you throw in there, Dale? So 
My work focuses on three things primarily, energy, transport, and food. Because after starting out in energy in the early 90s, in the early 2000s, I went looking for the second and third biggest causes of carbon emissions and found it was transport and food. And found that the three of them together, energy, transport, and food, were about 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint. And I thought that was really empowering mm. statistics because we all spend money every day on those things, how we power our home, how we travel, and what we eat. And if we change where we spend that money, we change which way the world goes around. And we don't need to wait for governments and big businesses to act. Actually, we have all of the power. And when you think about the problems of the world, they're driven by two things, the burning of fossil fuels and the eating of animals, actually. But they're driven by people, what people spend money on. And if we stop spending money on this stuff, then the world has to operate differently. So for me, that's a really empowering thing. And that's what I say to everybody, whether it's a person, another football club, another business, the UN even. I say it's about energy, transport and food. Can um, I add fashion into the... Yeah, it's true. Seriously, there are, there are massive. Some... How we buy, and my line is every pound we spend is a vote on how we want to live. Mm. And, you know, we should be looking at so much more upcycling, recycling. I wanted that Stroud Five Valleys to be all a marketplace of upcycling, recycling, secondhand. That should be what we should be putting at the heart there as well. Fashion is one of the things that is really one of the biggest, second biggest polluters. So can I add that to your list? I could be your fashion ambassador on that, Dale, all right? We'll talk about That's it when fine. I go walking past your fort, your castle. <laughs> and finally, um, I, I want to ask you, where would you like to see business and industry and the way we live in 10 years' time? How would you want this kind of economy? What is good really looking like? We actually need the government for this because they have the big levers of power, uh, taxes, subsidies and regulations. And regulations in particular tell us what we can and can't do and what we must do. And so, for example, we could regulate business better than we do now to have a better outcome. We could do that. We could change the tax system to point business in a different direction. We can change taxes and subsidies so that we no longer support fossil fuels and animal agriculture. And we put that money instead into renewable energy and plant-based agriculture and rewilding, which is so vital. We, we have all of the answers. We have the technology. It's more cost-effective to do it than not to do it. The only thing we're lacking is a playing field that's remotely level. And for that, we need government. And if we had government on board, politicians on board, then we could make the change we need much faster and in time, in fact. That's what we have to change. Yeah. Dale Vince, what a pleasure talking to you. Hope I might see you around the hood one day. <laughs> well, come to Forest Green. I'll see you there. Oh, yeah, no, I'll come to Forest Green. I will. I'll bring my little son along. He's got the Forest Green kit. Nice one. For yeah, sure. Yeah, drop me a line and um, come and join us. Take care, mate. I found Dale fascinating and exhausting in many, many levels. I mean, not only has he got a great vision, his passion, his values, but what just struck me after we talked that he not only has these ambitious ideas, but he brings them to life. You know, most of us would think one thing a year would be good. This guy is over it. It's incredible. It's no good just thinking big. He is acting it too. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Patrick Grant, a menswear designer who owns a bespoke Savile Row tailors and a social enterprise. The social enterprise is called Community Clothing and he's doing his best to make fashion truly sustainable.